Well, good morning. Charles Spurgeon, a pastor from a long time ago, he told a story of a guy named George Weishart, who is the chaplain and biographer of another guy named James Graham, who is a Scottish nobleman and soldier, and he held this title called, he was called the Marquis of Montrose, and it was in the 1600s. Seems fancy. Um, anyway, Graham was executed for being a traitor, and Weishart was his biographer, and he would have shared his fate, uh, but as he's on the scaffold, waiting to be thrown off and hanged, I think, uh, he was allowed to choose a psalm to be sung. And so he picked the 119th Psalm. <laughs> and before two-thirds of it had been sung, a pardon arrived, and his life was preserved. Now, Spurgeon says, he mentions the incident because, you know, it's often been quoted as a singular instance of a providential escape of a saintly person. But in reality, it was really just the ingenious device of a person who was more renowned for his shrewdness than his sanctity. And the length of this psalm was employed as basically just a means of getting more time. And luckily for Weishart, it worked. We're continuing our series, Summer in the Psalms, today. And we've reached the ninth message in it. And we're going to be looking at the 119th psalm. Psalms got a few distinctions to make it somewhat unique among the other 149 others in the collection. For one, this is the longest psalm and the longest chapter that's found in the Bible. At 176 verses, Psalm 119 is more than double the number of verses that are found in any other psalm. Now, think about it this way. I write my sermons by word counts, how I got trained to write papers and, and uh, news stories for journalism and everything. And so for me, when I'm writing out my manuscript, I aim for about 3,000 to 3,600 words. And that's going to get me 25 to 30 minutes as I preach. And so I was curious... I plugged in the entirety of Psalm 119 into my sermon editor to see what the word count was, and it came up to 2,498 words. That means if I read the whole psalm, it's going to take me about 20 minutes. So I've wasted five now at the beginning, so we'll finish with just reading. No. <laughs> um, I guess it is a great way, though, if you're going to choose a psalm to uh, have somebody sing while you're going to be executed, there's a good chance that you might get a pardon, you know, out of that. It is the longest psalm by far, but the format of the psalm is also somewhat unique. Uh, the psalm is an acrostic. So for Hebrew writers, that means that the first letter in each line would follow the Hebrew alphabet. And so there are actually a few psalms that do this where every line is the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. 22 letters, 22 lines. So what makes Psalm 119 a little bit different than the other ones is that instead of being one line, there's actually eight. Eight lines which start with the same Hebrew letter. Now most of the English translations that I've looked at, and I'm sure you know if you look in your Bibles you'll see this, um, they have headings over each of the eight verses to denote which of the Hebrew letters starts those. So if you've got your Bibles, you probably see something that says like Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, and that's the ones that I can remember from class. Um, but that's that's how it starts, and and so on and so forth. So what we what we lose with the English translation is the beauty of it. Like you don't actually see, you know, that it starts with the same letter for every single line in that area. Um, and I think like this would be difficult to do, right? To write eight lines with the same, starting with the same letter. Uh, I don't know if you've ever watched Whose Line Is It Anyway, the improv comedy uh, show. Uh, they play a game that's called the alphabet game, 
where they've got like a minute and there's three of them usually and they, they start, each of them t- has a sentence and it starts with a letter and then the next person has to start with the next letter and so on and so forth, which goes pretty good for a while until they get down to like Q, X, and Z and then it gets kind of funny at that point because who knows how you come up with this. And they try and trip each other up and stuff with their story. But, but whoever wrote this psalm, pretty talented, I would say. Um, unfortunately, we're not given a name for who wrote it. It doesn't actually say. But a lot of people think that the author was King David. But we don't really know because Scripture doesn't tell us. What we do know, though, is this psalm is basically a love letter to the Word of God. As theologian and author James Montgomery Boyce points out, the most striking feature of Psalm 119 is that each verse of the psalm refers to the Word of, to the word of God, the Bible, with only a small handful of exceptions. And as I was reading, I I found that there were five that, in all 176, that don't mention explicitly or indirectly the Word of God. Just five of those. So instead of going through the whole psalm, what we're going to do is we're going to look at five different things that Psalm 119 teaches us about the Lord's instruction. These five things come from uh, Dr. Mark Furtado, who's a professor of Old Testament, and he wrote a commentary on the book of Psalms. And Psalm 119 is written more like wisdom literature, like we find in the book of Proverbs. And so what we're going to do is we're going to jump around quite a bit. And there's going to be a lot of verses coming at you, kind of rapid fire. And all of these verses are going to be up on the screen, though, so you don't have to try and follow with me in your Bible. But what I'd recommend is note each theme. I actually put the themes up on the screen, which I know is rare for me. But um, note each theme and, and write the verses down for each one. And then we're going to read the whole psalm. or Well, we're not going to, but you should read the whole psalm uh, later on this week. Or today, however you want to do it. I'll leave that up to you. All right, let's go to the first theme, which is our attitude towards the Lord, to the Lord's instruction. Our attitude toward, I want to say toward the Lord, but I don't. Our attitude to the Lord's instructions. So throughout the psalm, the Hebrew word Torah gets translated as law in the NIV and some other English translations. But with the context of the passage, it's possible that a preferable translation would be instruction. How do you deal when you're given instruction for something? Like, are you usually like ready and willing to learn? Do you look forward to it? Do you, do you figure? Or maybe you're like, you know, I've got this under control. I can do this. I don't need any instructions. Um, I'm an instruction kind of person. If I buy something to put together, like maybe an office chair, a desk, a book, Lego, I don't know. Um, I'm going to follow the instructions for it. And I'd, I'd like to get it done right the first time rather than me sitting in a chair that falls apart, you know, at some point, which has happened. Um, or maybe you just like to figure it out on your own. You're like, this is easy. I can do this. Um, you, you figure those instructions weren't there for a reason. So I'm perfectly fine going at it on my own. What should our attitude towards God, in, uh, toward his instructions be? You'd figure that since God is the creator of everything that we see and experience, that he knows what's best for us, he's provided us with a record of his story, showing us both good and bad examples of people throughout history and following him, you would think that our attitude toward God's instruction would be good, right? I mean, it, it, it can really be defined, though, in one word, and that's love. Our attitude to the Lord's instruction should be one of love. And that's what we see throughout Psalm 119. So, verse 167 says, I obey your statutes, for I love them greatly. 
Because of our love for the Lord's instruction, the word of the Lord becomes more precious than even the most expensive elements. Verse 127 says, because I love your commands more than gold, more than pure gold, and because I consider all your precepts right, I hate every wrong path. The love we have for God's word drives us to study it, to meditate on it, and to put it into practice. Verse 97 says, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. And verse 129 says, your statutes are wonderful, therefore I obey them. So what is the attitude that we should have toward God's instruction? It should be love. Why, though? Why should we love God's word? It's not really because of what it is in particular, but it's because of who is behind it. Our love for God should lead us to have an attitude of love toward his word, his instruction. And as we grow in our relationship with God, we should continue to have a desire for it as well. And that leads us to the next thing. It's our desire for the Lord's instruction. Our desire for the Lord's instruction. When we love something, we tend to have a longing for it, right? Think about that person in your life. Maybe it's your spouse, your kids, parents. But when you're away from them, all you want to do is be with them again. You have a longing to be with them. Like you ache when you're not around them. Like I have that, but it's with pizza. (laughs) Throughout Psalm 119, the author uses imperatives when he's talking about, when he's asking God for his instructions. You know, he's... He's not like Oliver where he's sitting there all meek and stuff. And like, please, sir, may I have some more? You know, it's not that. It's direct. It's repeated. It's teach me, Lord. Teach me. Verse 26 says, I gave an account of my ways and you answered me. Teach me your decrees. Cause me to understand the way of your precepts that I may meditate on your wonderful deeds. Or in verse 33 where it says, teach me, Lord, the way of your decrees, that I may follow it to the end. We desire to learn the decrees of God so that we can apply them to our lives, to follow his way to the end. We desire to learn from God because of who he is, and he is good. Verse 68 says, you are good, and what you do is good. Teach me your decrees. But he's not just good, right? He is love. Verses 64, 124, and 135 talk to that. Verse 64 says, The earth is filled with your love, Lord. Teach me your decrees. Verse 124 says, Deal with your servant according to your love and teach me your decrees. And verse 135 says, Make your face shine on your servant and teach me your decrees. Having a desire for God's word, it might be something that we need to cultivate in our lives. It's not always the first thing that we think about when we are talking about scripture or or even more generally God's instructions. I know it wasn't for me for a long time, but it's having that understanding that God loves us. And so his instruction to us, his word, it's absolutely what's best for us. My hope is that you can foster that desire to ask God to give you that desire for his instruction, to say, teach me, Lord. And from there we go on to the third part, which is our resolve to live in keeping with the Lord's instruction. It's our resolve to live in keeping with the Lord's instruction. When we love 
when we desire the Lord's instruction, we know that it's what's best for us, and we know that God is behind it, and he is for us unlike anybody else, then when we've got all that, our goal should be to apply that instruction to our lives. That's our choice. It's our decision that we've got to make when it comes to the Lord's instruction. And the psalmist, he makes that decision to follow the Lord and to apply his word. Verse 173 says, May your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. Verse 30 says, I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I have set my heart on your laws. I love how the New Living Translation, the NLT, translates this verse. It says, I have chosen to be faithful. I have determined to live by your regulations. What we're doing when we say that is that we are resolving to follow God's instruction. And we're just really, we're giving our devotion to the Lord. Now, it's not an easy thing either. There are always going to be things that fight against you and, and devoting yourself to God, whether it's the things of this culture, the distractions of the world, our shortened attention spans. Maybe it's even Satan himself seeking to disrupt your devotion to God. But we cannot allow anything to break that devotion. Here's how the psalmist puts it in these verses. Verse 23 says, Even though rulers sit together and slander me, your servant will meditate on your decrees. Verse 51 says, The arrogant mock me unmercifully, but I do not turn from your law. Verse 61 says that though the wicked bind me with ropes, I will not forget your law. Verse 95 says, The wicked are waiting to destroy me, but I will ponder your statutes. And then verse 157 says, Many are the foes who persecute me, but I have not turned from your statutes. When we come under attack, then we need that resolve, right? It's far better to make that decision now, when we're not under attack, than to wait when you have the proper attitude, when you have the desire, when you have the resolve, then when difficulties come, when hardships come, when attacks come, then you're not even going to think about it. It's just what you do. You will still live in the Lord's instruction. But it does take work to get there, right? It takes study. It takes meditating on God's word. The late pastor Warren Wiersbe writes about meditation. He says, meditation is to the soul what digestion is to the body. To meditate means to turn over God's word in mind and heart, to examine it, to compare scripture with scripture, to feed on its wonderful truths. When you have that, when you have that resolve, then there are some benefits that come from that. And that leads us to our next point, which is our benefits from the Lord's instructions. Our benefits from the Lord's instructions. Furtado mentions three benefits for us who follow the Lord's instructions in his commentary. The first is peace. Verse 165 says, Great peace has those who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. The Hebrew word for peace that's used here is shalom. The idea is kind of being whole. There's a wellness, there's a tranquility with this peace. When we love the Lord and his instruction, we find that kind of peace, and nothing's going to make us stumble. I liken this to, you know, I know when I'm following God's instruction, when I'm in his word every day, when I'm meditating on it, and it's not just for sermon prep, 
or something like that, but I've got a peace when I do devotionally in the Word. I've got a peace that doesn't trip me up easily when things come. But when I'm not doing that, then even the smallest thing will trip me up. So peace is the first benefit. The next is comfort. Verse 50 says, My comfort in my suffering is this, your promise preserves my life. Verse 52 says, I remember, Lord, your ancient laws, and I find comfort in them. Verse 76 says, May your unfailing love be my comfort, according to your promise to your servant. As followers of God, we face trials in this life, but we don't face them alone. The Holy Spirit is traditionally called the comforter. And he takes the word of God and applies it to our hearts to comfort us. So while we might face trials, we can face them well because we know that the Lord is there with us and will care for us. The third benefit is that it gives freedom. Verse 45, excuse me, verse 45 says, I will walk about in freedom for I have sought out your precepts. Sin gives us the promise of freedom, but it's a promise that cannot be fulfilled. It cannot follow through. It's kind of like the sirens from the Odyssey, right? Like they sing an alluring song that draws whoever hears it to them, but they're drawing you to their doom, to your doom. The alluring song for sin is that, you know, you don't have to follow all the rules that God puts there for you. You can do what you want to do. You can be your own God. But that is not true freedom, is it? Because you become a slave to those sins. True freedom comes from following God's will. Like we said, if God knows what's best for you, he's not going to lead you astray. Following his instruction actually allows us to walk in freedom because we're no longer slaves, we're no longer shackled to that sin that is killing us. That burden is lifted from us. That's going to lead us to our final point, which is what gets revealed as we read through Psalm 119, and that is our Lord's heart in his instruction. Our Lord's heart in his instruction. The Lord loves you with an unfailing love. As Furtado writes, all of his instruction to us is a revelation of his love for us. Verse 41 says, may your unfailing love come to me, Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Verse 149 says, hear my voice in accordance with your love. Preserve my life, Lord, according to your laws. And verse 159 says, See how I love your precepts. Preserve my life, Lord, in accordance with your love. As we saw last week in Psalm 103, God loves us with a love that is from everlasting to everlasting. That means it has no beginning and no end. I'm not even sure we can imagine what that looks like or means the full extent of it. God's love for us is what he has given us in his revelation in his word. His love has given us his instruction, which is, as we said, what is best for us. And that shows us the heart in his instruction. So these five things, our attitude toward God's instruction, our desire for it, our resolve to live in keeping with it, our benefits from his instruction, and 
his heart in his instruction leads me to look back to the first eight verses of this passage, the ones that start with Aleph, which you would think is kind of like the Hebrew A, but it's really not. It's like a silent letter, which I don't, doesn't make sense. But serves as a summary, verses 1 through 8, kind of serve as a summary for the whole psalm. Verse 1 says, Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do no wrong, but follow his ways. You've laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. It's one thing to have a love for God's word and his instruction. But what do we do with that? What should we do with that? What should it look like in our lives? And there's a few things that we need to do. The first thing is we need to actually study it, study God's word. Purpose for him giving us his word is to point us to him. It's his story, right? In verse 2, we seek him with all our heart by studying God's word. The second thing is that we need to actually obey it, too. If we're going to call God Lord, then he needs to be Lord. Lord means something. And again, in verse 2, it says that those who keep with the Lord's statutes are blessed. The third thing is that we need to meditate on it and store it up. Verse 11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. G. Campbell Morgan sums it up this way. He says, this verse says, it's the best book in the best place for the best purpose. One of the reasons that Hebrew writers wrote the Psalms as acrostics were to help people when they were meditating on it and memorizing it. The fourth thing we need to do is to declare it, declare God's word. Verse 13 says, with my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. We don't want to keep God's word to ourselves. We need to share the good news of it with everybody. Share the message of salvation with those who don't believe and discuss it with those who do. The last thing is that we rejoice over it. It gives us delight. Verse 14 says, I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. And notice there's a little connection point here between rejoicing in the statutes and delighting in the decrees. And that connection point is meditating on his precepts. As one commentator writes, as, as we reflect on what God, on what the Word of God is and what it does, then we find rejoicing and delighting to be inescapable. Now, God doesn't only just reveal himself in his Word, but he also reveals his plan of salvation. Like we spoke about earlier, we are slaves to, to our sin before we are set free. But we're only able to be set free by the one who paid the penalty for our sin by dying on a cross. In the Gospel of John, he gets introduced like this. John 1.1 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, 
and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things are made, were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And then we skip to verse 14, where it says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Scripture in and of itself cannot save you. God's instruction, the law, cannot save you. The Word, as John calls him, can. What God's law does is it shows you where you've fallen short. As Hebrews 4.12 states, the word, of the, the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. The law shows us our faults. Jesus saves us from those faults and is able to put us on the right path where we can now walk faithfully, able to follow the Lord's instructions for our lives. Psalm 119 is the longest psalm in the Bible, but it is so rich in its appreciation for God's word, for his instruction. Wearsby writes, it's as though the writer of the psalm is saying, God's word is enough. If you have the scriptures, that's all you need for life life and godliness. Indeed, the Bible points us to Christ. He is the living word about whom the written word speaks. If you haven't started following Jesus, then I'd invite you to do so today. And then you can live in that freedom that he provides, that freedom from sin and death, and that freedom is only found in Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, I, th- I thank you so much for your word that you have given us to lead us to you, Lord. But not just to reveal yourself, but to reveal Christ so that we can find him, we can follow him, and we can be reconciled to you, Father, that we can come home to you. And Lord, it is, that's our prayer, it's that if anybody here doesn't know Jesus, that they would be moved in their heart because you are the one who draws them to you. They're not here by accident to hear this message, to hear about this psalm, the psalm that is probably the the one that most shows our love for Scripture. But we know that that Scripture just points to Christ. And so, Father, um, we... we or at that time in our service where we remember the sacrifice Jesus made on the cross as he died for our sins, his body broken, his blood shed, and he was buried in a tomb. But three days later, he rose from dead, from the dead. And we are so, so thankful, Lord. We are so grateful and I mean words can't even 
explain it for what you've done for us. Something we could not do on our own. Father, we thank you so much. We love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.